It's good to sing scripture. Uh, Philippians 4.4, to rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul's letter to Timothy, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced, persuaded that he's able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day. Aren't you glad that there might have been a time in your life where you're a little wayward and the Lord just, just kept you, just uh, took care of you, even when you were maybe doing some dumb things and your brains were falling out and not living the way that you knew you should be living? God, God was faithful and kept you. And uh, very grateful for that and that from the Psalms. I want to ask you to stand back up again with me, and I want us to read this verse of Scripture, a couple verses respond. Would you stand with me? Let's read from 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5. Would you read it with me? For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You may be seated. Thank you. That phrase in 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5, whoever, whomever has been born again, John says, will what? Overcome this world. Will overcome. And the key to that overcoming is faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, just a couple of thoughts from that verse before we look at the subject of anxiety this morning. One is, uh, is that verse refers to the man, woman, young person who has been given a new birth, whoever has been born of God, uh, given a new birth. So we do not, we do not birth ourselves, amen? Amen. We don't birth ourselves. We repent. We can admit sin and feel remorse and repent and turn from sin and self and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work, the work of the cross, and, and we believe in his resurrection, and so we can do those things, but only God gives the new life. He births. We do not birth ourselves. He's the one that saves us, regenerates, indwells, seals, gives us a new nature, a new heart. He's the one that transforms us. All of that is him, him working in us. And the second thought is the one saved by God who's been truly saved, he says, then we'll overcome the world. So he births us, he gives us salvation, and then it's through him working in us that we overcome the world. Do you remember several weeks ago when I reflect on the word overcomer? that John uses in that verse. You remember where that word is from, overcomer? It's a familiar word. It's Nike. You remember that? Nike is actually pronounced Nike, and it refers to the victors. I think that's, you know, Michigan sings Hail to the Victors. I'd never thought about it being, a, being that kind of song before, but it refers to the victors, to the one who, after the battle, carries off the spoil. And so over, overcomers... You and I, those whom God has saved, who's given a new birth, new life, we are the victors. And for the last several weeks, we've examined a few of the fiery darts the enemy shoots in our direction, specifically the fiery darts of worry and the darts of doubt 
to drag us down, to weaken our faith, to keep us from walking in confidence in the Lord and victory in the Lord. And this morning, I want to consider the fiery dart of anxiety. Any of you ever a little anxious? Anxiety. Before reading the text, just a little bit of background, and we'll read from Philippians chapter 4 in just a moment. But a little background, uh, you remember the Jerusalem church, or the uh, Antiochian church were the ones who sent out uh, Paul, and initially Barnabas, and then later Paul and Silas, and, and so they're going out on these evangelism church planning trips, mission trips, and at the end, and during the second trip is when Paul receives a, a vision, uh, he has a vision, a dream, and he sees a man standing, the man of Macedonia, and he's saying, come help us. Come help us. And so the Holy Spirit had prevented Paul from going to other places. And so uh, the Spirit leads him, and they go into that region. And when they come into the city of Philippi, on the Sabbath, the Bible says this all in Acts 16. The Sabbath says that there are some women who have gathered on the Sabbath down by the river to pray. And so Paul goes down there, he and Silas, and they begin to engage some of these people in conversation, probably praying with them. And he meets a woman named Lydia. She was a wealthy woman, a seller of purple, and she comes to faith. The Bible says that she and her whole household are baptized, and evidently she had some wealth. She opens up her home, her house, and I believe that's where the church at Philippi began to meet, in this home of Lydia. And then later, Paul, in the 16th chapter, he cast out a demon, and these and it affects these guys' business, and so they're pretty upset, and so they rush Paul and Silas, and they're angry with them, and they throw them into prison stocks, beat them before that, scourge them. And you remember the, you remember the story, what Paul and Silas are doing in the prison? They're put in stocks, locked up, and, in the, and the Bible says at midnight, the other soldiers begin to hear these brothers praying, and, and worshiping, singing hymns unto the Lord. And, and then in that story, the angel, uh, God produces an earthquake. Things are chaotic. And Paul and Silas are freed. And, and the Philippian jailer is afraid that his prisoners have escaped. And right before he takes his life, Paul and Silas begin to witness to him. And the Bible says the Philippian jailer believes and is baptized along with his whole household. And so you got... The Lydia and some other women come to faith, and, and then uh, the Philippian jailer's his house, and so you have the beginning of a church that starts in Philippi. And the church at Philippi w- was a congregation that Paul dearly loved. He had a special affection for, and, and so the church is planned about 10 years later. Uh, Paul has finished all of his missionary journeys. He's back in Jerusalem, and uh, he's, uh, uh, he's arrested and uh, he's, put in, he's put in prison there, locked up there in Jerusalem, stays there two years, two years in prison. And then he, he finally, because he's a Roman citizen, appeals back to Caesar. And so then they send him up to Rome. He's under a house arrest in probably a little dank room, little apartment area, under house arrest. He's there there for two more years. And while he's there, he's not idle. He's still ministering. He's still witnessing, sharing the gospel. And he writes the books of Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and this text to the church at Philippi that we're going to read. So here he has been in prison probably about four years. And uh, listen to what he says to us. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, 
my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord. So stand fast in the Lord. I implore Yodia and I implore Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, referring to the rest of the congregation, true companion, or, or maybe this other true companion, help these women who labored with me, co-labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Stand fast in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord, verse 4, and rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests, your prayer requests, be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Pray with me. God, we know that you are present with us and always faithful and true to speak through your word. We welcome your spirit, giving us ears to hear your voice and upon hearing that our faith would increase in you, shielding us from the fiery darts of worry and doubt and anxiety, bringing forth your peace that would guard our hearts and keep our minds. In Christ Jesus, the Lord, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible open, would encourage you to keep it open with me. And I want to first consider with you just for a moment Paul's relationship with the Philippian church. And so in the very first verse, notice how he describes these believers, this congregation. He describes them as my beloved, my joy, my crown. And he says, I long to see you, I long to be with you again. How many of you? kind of can relate to this a little bit. Perhaps you have a son or a daughter, sons or daughters or grandkids who are living away from you today. Maybe across the country somewhere and and you love them and you sorely miss them and sometime this year you look forward to seeing them and being together with them. And when you're together with your family, you feel so, so much joy, so much happiness, and you're proud of them, and they're like a crown being placed on your head. Just such an honor, such a privilege to be with family. That's kind of the, the way that Paul feels towards these Philippians. It's a good way for a pastor to feel for his church, those whom God has placed under his charge to shepherd. And so that's how he feels about them. And then notice some things that Paul says about and says to The Philippian church, look at verse 1. And did you notice the phrase, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord? And he recurs in this text. What does he say first, verse 1? He says, don't give up. He's telling the church, don't give up. Stand fast, stand firm. That's a commandment. He's exhorting them to that end. Stand fast in the Lord. Encourage him to remain firm, to stick with it to hang in there, to not to give up. The, and, and let's just be real, real honest with this because we're still sinful people. Sometimes there's things that occur in churches, things that displease God, things that God 
doesn't want to occur in the church, which is certainly happening here in the church of Philippi, but sometimes things happen in the church that can disillusion us as followers of Christ to the point that some of us may think, I'm done with that. I don't need that. I don't, I, I, and you get disillusioned about the body of Christ and we want to quit. And certainly might be understandable, especially if you're hurt, get beat up and get wounded. But what does Paul say to you? For our good, for, for God's glory, for our good, he says, stand fast in the Lord. Don't stand firm. And the idea is to endure, to persevere. Even when you may feel like throwing in the towel. And evidently, there were some discouraging things happening in the church among the members. And so Paul says, encourages them to stand fast. Notice in the first verse, he begins with, therefore, even before he makes that, that exhortation, that command, stand fast. He, he referring back to something else. And I think you see what he's referring to in verses 17 through 21. Look at that with me very quickly. 17, notice this is what I think he's referring back to before he gives this command to stand fast in the Lord. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have a, us for a pattern. And then jump down to verse 24. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body that it might be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul, at the time that he writes this letter, he's saying, follow my example. You feel like quitting? You feel like throwing in the towel? Just consider me. And, and as he writes this, he's not sitting behind a desk in a country, in a comfy air-conditioned office at all. He's probably seated on the ground in a small dank room, having been arrested for years, and he says, follow my example, stand fast. And his example is what? First, he, he, he maintains an awareness, I would propose to you, on the brevity of life. As he's going through this hard time, he, he remembers this is not all there is. Look at verse 20. He says, our real citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. And this life is fleeting. It's so, so temporary. His, one of the disciples, James, you remember, he says, yeah, life is pretty brief. It's like a vapor. It's like a mist. It's here today and so quickly gone. But our names are registered in heaven. That's where we're headed. And so he maintains an awareness on the brevity of life. And second, he calls them to remember that they are to remain focused, that one day we are all going to be conformed to the perfect image, to the perfect likeness of Jesus. First John writes, the eyes, that's ears, but one day we shall behold him and we shall be like him as he is. And so Paul is saying, follow the pattern that I've set before you. Imitate me even as I imitate Christ. And he lived his life as an example, a model of how to walk with Jesus. Let me ask you, are you living the same way? First of all, do you know for sure this morning that your name is registered in heaven? That God has given you a new birth, that God has saved you and transformed you, and there's evidence of that? Do you know that for sure? And then second, if you're a Christian, you know that you're saved. Are you living your life in such a way that you're modeling, you're an example for others to look up to, to imitate? 
a role model. And by the way, you don't have to wait and start living that way when you get to be an adult. You can start when you're a young person and be different and live for Christ, be an example. That's what Paul is saying to these Philippians. Stand fast in the Lord. Follow my example in the Lord. That's where our strength comes from, in the Lord, in the Lord. And then in verses two through three, not only does he say stand fast in the Lord, but he says, church at Philippi, you, you need to get along. <laughs> Think there are any churches that need to hear this today? You need to get along. And specifically, he says to be of the same mind in the Lord. The idea here is the Philippian church and every church needs gospel unity. They need a oneness. And so look at verse 2. Paul implores. That's the word. I implore two women in the church, and he names them. He singles them out. Yodia and Syntyche. Can you imagine these two ladies sitting in the Philippian church? Paul pens this letter. Sends a messenger to the church at Philippi and all excited on a, maybe a Sunday morning, they're all gathered on the Lord's day. Hey, we're going we're gonna to get to receive and read a letter from Paul. Yay. Boy, this is so good. And so they're all enthusiastic and expecting to hear something. And so they're all sitting there and the letter starts to be read and they go through chapter one and they go through chapter two. And by the way, prior to this, there's several admonitions, exhortations in this letter for unity and oneness. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. Unity and oneness. And so this letter is being read and whole church is sitting there and all of a sudden we come to Philippians 4 verse 2 and Paul says specifically, I implore Euodia and Syntyche to get it together and to agree in the Lord. If any of you named Euodia and Syntyche, can you imagine singles them out. I would propose to you it's a very loving thing to do. Um, there might be some uh, pastoral ways to go about that before just reading their names out in a letter on Sunday morning, but that's, that was the only way to communicate with them that he had. I implore these two ladies to get on the same page, to be of the same mind. And he invites them, he calls them. That word implore means to urge and plead. And it kind of conveys, I looked it up, that word can, conveys the idea of praying for them, just pray, pleading for these two women to get along on the same page, to reconcile, to resolve their issues, to get it behind them and to agree together and to move ahead in Christ. Now, the text never conveys to us what the issue was between these women. We're not given an explanation of what the problem was. Paul doesn't describe it, and it's because he probably most likely doesn't even care what it is. What does seem likely that is that these two women were prominent women in the church, prominent members, women who were respected, women who had lived godly lives, women who had some influence in the church. You say, well, how do you know that? Because Paul describes them as women who labored with me in the gospel. 
which means he knew them personally. They were with them in the gospel. And he, in verse 3, they are listed along with a brother named Clement. A true companion is mentioned there, and along with the rest of the fellow brethren. Now, I just throw this out to you, would raise the question. When he describes the Odean Syntyche as co-laborers with him in the gospel, what does that mean? What do you, what do you think that Paul and those the, the role that those women had with the Apostle Paul in laboring in the gospel. Do uh, you think they were in the kitchen preparing meals and packing sack lunches for the men? you think they were sitting in a nursery watching little babies? Do you think they were cleaning the bathrooms? And perhaps they were. And I would say all of which are vital, necessary ministries, providing hospitality and loving on kids and all those kinds of things. I'm not trying to make light of any of those kinds of things and ministries. However, what I'm saying to you is Yodia and Syntyche are mentioned as co-laborers in the gospel, which means these women had some kind of involvement in ministering the word and spreading the gospel. Perhaps like Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11:5, where he forbids not women to pray and to prophesy, to minister the word. So we don't know exactly what all that entailed, but we do know from their roles and from their ministry in the gospel, they were prominent, labored in some way, were respected at spiritual influence, and something occurs between these women, some kind of falling out, some kind of serious disagreement, some blow up, and whatever it was, it was having a ripple effect through the congregation resulting in division disrupting the unity of the church and evidently it was serious enough that word of it got back to Paul in Rome and so he includes this in this epistle and he minces no words. He singles them out by name to be of the same mind, to reconcile for the glory of Christ and for the good of the church and for their own good. And in verses two and three, he calls on the rest of the church. Look at, he says, all of you need to give this some attention he specifically says the rest of the church, the others, he said, you all need to help these two women to get on the same page, and he urges them to do so. It's the same principle you see in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Let me read it. If a man, if a woman, referring to a member of the church body, the church family, Paul says is in sin, they're overtaken by some trespass, by some besetting sin, those of you who are spiritually mature are to restore that person. In other words, go to them and help them and get involved. But Paul says, always do it in a spirit of gentleness. To get involved. To go to a brother, to go to a sister in gentleness, being led by the Spirit. Listen, that is not meddling. Think, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. Go to somebody else and kind of put my nose in some something where it doesn't belong. No, that's not the way it is presented as all. It's not meddling. It's an act of love. It's an act of love. Paul says, for the unity, for the good of the church, I urge you, true companions, to help them out. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter twelve about himself? He promised. He said, if I be lifted up, what? I will draw all men unto myself. And I've learned by experience that we're not going to lift up nor exalt Jesus as a church family when we're busy bickering among ourselves. 
Paul warned the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 15, if you are biting and devouring one another, beware lest you consume one another. And so, Hillcrest, let's stand fast in the Lord. Let's, let's be fixed. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's stay strong. Even if we, you know, we might go through a time where we're a little discouraged, a little frustrated, let's stand fast in the Lord. Our strength comes from in the, being in the Lord. And second, let's get along. Let's have the same mind in the Lord. And I mentioned it earlier, Philippians 2, if there's an any incentive in Christ, any affection, any love, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, thinking more of others than yourselves, looking not only to your interests, but to the interests of others. Let this attitude, this perspective, this lens, your attitude be the mind of Christ. Humility and gentleness in the church. God calls us to be humble and gentle in the way that we relate to each other. Humble and gentle. I was on a phone call Friday night with a member of my family and a little and she was a little frustrated with some other members of the family and just listened and said, need to be gracious, need to be gentle, gentle and gracious, you know. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? Then third look at verse four. Let's be known as joyful people. We, we sang it right at the beginning of the service. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Listen, uh, That's not the natural thing for us to do, is it? To rejoice in the Lord? That's not always going to be our normal inclination. In fact, our normal fleshly inclination might be to do something completely opposite of that. And in the text, one of the things robbing the Philippian church of joy was this conflict, was this strife and division. And I don't know if you've ever been through something like that in the church, but it just drains you, just just draws out all the spiritual energy in you. And and so it was robbing the church of joy. And the fact is when relationships are tested, Satan will hurl this fiery dart of anxiety, which he mentions later in the text. There's certainly other anxiety producers. Certainly strains in relationships produce anxiety. But there's also other things that produce anxiety. Loss of a loved one, work struggles, demands, disappointments, health issues, and on, all kinds of frustrations that can produce some anxiety. And all those things and more can cause us to lose our joy, can rob us of our songs. Remember in the Old Testament? I, th- I think it, I'm not sure, I think it was Psalm 127. Do you remember when the Israels who had been the psalmist is writing about them having been taken captive by the Babylonians and they were removed from their homeland and removed from their families and their temples. And the Bible says they're sitting by the rivers of Babylon and, they're, and those who had taken them captives are making fun of them. And they say, sing to us the songs of Zion. And God's people say, how can we sing? How can we sing? They'd lost their song. They'd lost their joy. That can happen to us. Notice verse 4, Paul doesn't say, rejoice in the Lord when things are good and easy and smooth, does he? He says, rather, 
Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. The idea is that joy, our joy, comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's beyond our circumstances. In fact, joy is listed as one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Paul is not writing this letter from a beach house. He's writing it from a prison house. And some of the Philippians could remember a time maybe when they heard the story about Paul and Silas being in that Philippian prison and had been beaten and scourging in those stocks and singing and praying at midnight. Where did they acquire such joy? How were they able to do that? You see, most people believe that you get joy when you get everything you want. But a Christian understands joy comes, listen to me, joy comes when we realize what we deserve. Do you realize what you and I deserve from God? We deserve all of his wrath. We deserve all of his holy, righteous judgment. We deserve eternal separation from a holy God because we're sinners. That's who we are by nature. Aren't you joyful today that God doesn't give us what we deserve? There's joy in that. There is, there's joy in the gospel. You and I deserve judgment, eternal separation, but instead we've received forgiveness and new life and salvation and peace and joy. And purpose. The fact is, the joy of the Lord is poured into us by the Lord. The psalmist says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. So rejoice in the Lord, in Him. And again, Paul says, I want to reiterate this rejoice always in the Lord. It's kind of, it's kind of unexplainable how we can grieve and be filled with a sorrow while at the same time we can rejoice in the Lord. It honors the Lord Jesus and certainly makes us easier people to live with and to be around when we're joy, joyful. Which leads us to this final admonition in verses 6 and 7 to overcome anxiety. To overcome anxiety. Proverbs 12:25 says, "Anxiety in our hearts weighs us down." What is anxiety? Well, it's cousin, it's a cousin to worry, it's a cousin to fear. Running thoughts through our minds over and over that are fear-based instead of faith-based. Anybody do that? Any of, you have a, any of you have a rocking chair at home? We've got several. Some antique rocking chairs have been handed down, some of them very old. And you, some of you may have a rocking chair on your front porch, we're, we're going to get it couple of rocking chairs this spring put on our big porch in the front. And what do you do in a rocking chair? You, you just, you, you rest, right? And you rock back and forth and rock over and over and over. Do you know what some of us do? We get anxious thoughts, fearful thoughts, doubting thoughts. We get them in our mind and we just rock those thoughts in our minds over and over and over and over and dwell on fear and dwell on all of the what ifs. What if, and I just rock, what if this happened? What if I run out of money? 
What if my, this happens to my kids? What if the, my, get this kind of health diagnosis back from that biopsy? And we just rock and rock in those fear-based thoughts over and over. And that worry and that fear becomes anxiety. Anxiety. Listen, it is a normal thing. It is a natural thing for us to have questions and to wonder about things and to think ahead. That's all normal. In fact, some of that's good for us. You, we need to think ahead. But there's something bad, sinful. It's a sinful anxiety where we just focus on me and myself and all that I'm going through and all the what-ifs that can happen, and we just rock in that over and over. Someone has referred to it as functional atheism. Functional atheism, where you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ live and think as if God doesn't exist or as if God is small and God is not in control, and God is not good, and God doesn't love me. And so we yield to worry and doubt and anxiety, and, it, and it's a joy killer. <laughs> not only will anxiety kill joy in you, but if you're an anxious, worrisome, kind of fearful person, it'll suck the joy out of everybody else around you, keep you from living in victory. Do you know that there's actual anxiety disorders? Mood swings, irritability, rapid heartbeat, sweating, chest pain, exhaustion, shortness of breath, panic, insomnia, hypertension, eating disorder, panic, anxiety. And there's all different ways to cope with it, some good ways, some bad ways. Aromatherapy, yoga, alcohol, smoking marijuana, eating, Spending, buying, acupuncture, exercise, medicines, deep breathing. And you can even get these little things. You go to YouTube on your cell phone and you can even get this rain, rain sounds at night and, and all these wood, woods in the, you know, birds. I don't know, all this noise. You just, just to cope with anxiety to relax you. And I want to say to you, there's nothing wrong with some of those things. Some of those things I mentioned are pretty wrong, pretty horrible. What does God say? God says, start with this, verse 6. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything what? Pray. Worry about nothing, be anxious for nothing, pray about everything. Through prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God and the peace of God. There's a peace of God which is beyond human understanding It'll guard your mind and keep your heart, guard your heart, keep your mind in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. That's God's promise to you. Be anxious for nothing, pray about everything, and I'll give you my peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. And I sent the Holy Spirit, a paraclete, a comforter, who will indwell you and walk with you and be with you, and he will give you peace. You and I can rock and rock and rock in our worry and fear and anxiety over and over, or we can get up and get down on our knees and talk to Jesus, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer is the antidote to worry and the cure for anxiety. Let me close. In his book, The Dance of Hope, Bill Frey remembers the day he tried to pull a stump out of the Georgia clay. 
He was 11 years old at the time, and one of his chores was gathering up firewood for the small stove in the fireplace in their home. And he would search the woods for stumps of pine trees that had been cut down, and then he would chop those stumps into kindling. He writes in the book, the best stumps were saturated with resin and therefore would burn more easily. And he writes this, one day I found a large stump in an open field near the house and I tried to unearth it. I literally chopped and cut and pushed and pulled and crowbarred for hours and hours, but the root system was so deep and so large, I simply couldn't pull it out of the ground. I was struggling still when my father came home from the office, spotted me out in the field and came over to watch. I think I see your problem, he said. What's that, I asked. You're not using all of your strength, he replied. I exploded and told him how hard and how long I had worked all day long. And he said, no, 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 you're not using all of your strength. When I cooled down, I asked him what he meant. And he said this, you're not using all of your strength. You haven't asked me to help you yet. And he closes and says this business of anxiety management is like pulling out stumps from the clay. Some of your worries have deep root systems. Extracting them is hard, hard work, but you don't have to do it alone. And he concludes, present the challenge to your father and ask for help. Will he solve the issue? Yes, he will. Will he solve it immediately? Maybe, or maybe part of the test is an advanced course in patience and prayer. But this much is sure, contagious calm and peace will happen to the degree in which we learn to turn to him. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say it again, rejoice. Do not be let your gentleness be known unto all men, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And my peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and keep your mind in Christ Jesus the Lord. I invite you to pray with me.